Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing on a podcast favorite, historian Claire Barris. Claire, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. So, Claire, for those just tuning in for the first time who are breaking all the rules and not going in order, yes, I am shaming you all. Claire, tell us well, who you are. Yeah, yeah, for the rule breakers. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Claire Barris. I uh, am... Um, I'm a senior systems engineer uh, at a company in Utah, uh, but I, I love to do Mormon history on the side. I do uh, I do a thing called Today in Mormon History that has interesting uh, tidbits every day, and I do some. Uh, I've done some blogging uh, at WithoutEnd.org and some other places, and I don't know, just a little bit of history stuff. I enjoy doing that. Yeah, and you've come to Sunstone and presented, and in fact, you were at our first historical conference that we did in Short Creek with, you know, all the different, not all the different, many of the different fundamentalist groups you were there. Yes, yeah, that that was that was awesome. That was a great experience, and yeah, I uh, I was able to, to give a paper there, and yeah, and I've done uh, a number of other Sunstones, and I've uh, done some stuff at MHA also, and yeah, but that, that was, that was cool. Um, I enjoyed that. Well, one of the fun things, um, about you is that you covered the revelations. You did the lawless, uh, woman revelation. And what was funny about that, not funny, but one of our listeners heard that podcast and ended up dedicating her published book of poetry to that revelation and to your podcast. Yeah, that, that, that was cool. I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, one person <laughs> at least found that interesting. I and I found that it is a very fascinating story of uh, Hebrew C. Kimball and his uh, the Wallace Women Revelation. And and uh, yeah, I'm glad I picked up a copy of that book. I'm hoping that she'll sign that for me. I, I suspect she will. And that that was cool. Yeah, absolutely cool. Yeah, that was cool. And one of the things uh, that I'm excited about with this topic is you're going to be doing something similar. We're going to be talking about the phrase, an elect lady, which you've sort of talked about before when we were talking about the different polygamy revelations. But you have some new interesting insights to the fact that Emma Smith wasn't the only elect lady. Yes, that is right. Uh, There were actually two other women before her that were that had the title elect lady, uh, and they were all completely independent. And so we have three, three examples of this phrase uh, being used to define women who had elevated spiritual status in their communities. Emma Smith is one, but these other two women are, uh, they're not uh, Mormon. And I think it's kind of, I, I really enjoyed looking into the lives of these women because you know, sometimes we look right just at Mormonism, and I think it's wise to step out and look at it in context and see how the flow of Mormonism fits in with with other stuff that's going on. So, I don't know. I think this is going to be uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm really excited for it. So, why don't we just sort of get into it? Um, there's a lot of fascinating things about this term, but for those maybe just tuning in, why don't you tell us, you know, we have a lot of non-Mormon listen- listeners now. What is an elect lady? Why would that have any significance to Mormons? Well, 
Yeah, the elect lady is uh, a term that comes from the New Testament, Second John, and John is writing uh, a, an epistle to the elect lady, and uh, and so this this is an example in the New Testament of some woman that was very elevated in her status, and um, and so these other women in America. Uh, this this term uh, is powerful to them, and they they end up being called the same thing, and uh, and so that's that's kind of where this comes uh, comes from is from the New Testament. Now, uh, and Lindsay, I just got to say before we get in too far, I I appreciate you having me on. I I think you're awesome, and everything you do is uh, <laughs> is just really cool. So I well, thanks, Claire. That's high praise coming from you, and I have to say that. The only reason why I get to do awesome stuff is because I have awesome friends like you who come on and make me sound really smart. So I appreciate that. It goes both ways. So, all right. But these, so these three women have, there are forces that are pulling and pushing on them and reshaping who they are. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important to understand that patriarchy, uh, the further back in time you go in the United States, the worse patriarchal environment was and it was very very oppressive in the 1770s and 1780s when these two women come onto the scene just as shortly after the uh american the united states um is uh comes online basically and and begins these women are there and they're wrestling with patriarchy gender and what it means to be a woman. I'm going to try to focus on these because they're they're very important in, in these women and their lives. I was just going to say, yeah, that's great. So let's uh, start talking about the first, the first woman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jemima Wilkinson. Uh, now she was born in the United States and she's really the first prophetess that is, uh, comes out of the United States. Now at age 18, she has a series of visions. She gets really ill, and she has some visions, and and then she dies, and her spirit goes up, up to heaven, and then about a half hour later, spirit of Jemima stays in heaven, and a new male spirit comes down, and possesses her body, and animates it, and she comes back to life. And they refer to this as her resurrection, that she was resurrected. So, and really quick, and, she Jemima Wilkinson doesn't have anything to really do with Joseph Smith, right? This is before his exactly. restoration. Okay. This is a good 50 years before there's anything Mormon at all going on. So, 50 or 60 years. So, this this is way, way back in time. So, yeah, at age 18, this, this happens to her. And she's never the same emerges with a new confidence that she never had amazing confidence and people are highly gravitated to her personality and whatever you might believe about her experience it it radically altered her and her personality now when she came you know she said that she got that this spirit that is that was in her uh, that she received a new name and she uses that terminology new name 
that she got from the Lord. And that name was uh, the Public Universal Friend. And she never went by the name Jemima again. She uh, always was known as the Universal Friend or the Public Universal Friend. Do we know anything about her background prior to this? Yeah, she is uh, comes from a Quaker background. And the thing about Quakers is they were very, um, really quite progressive uh, when, as far as women were concerned. They believed that women could uh, speak in church. They believed that God illuminated the hearts of all people, including women. But uh, most of the other religions did not believe that. They, it was purely male, and only men could preach. And and so so this is a big deal, um, and a huge influence on on Jemima Wilkinson. Now, uh, after when she so the Universal Friend, as she is now called, and never calls herself again Jemima, she said her family no longer had any meaning to her. It's really like she was there was somebody else inside of her, and it wasn't really her. Now, there, there's some controversy uh, or question over wh- who she thought she was. So a lot of her followers and, and other people thought that she believed she was the Messiah, but she never claims that herself. And whenever people try to pin her down, she would be, um, she wouldn't answer with a straight answer, usually very metaphorically. And so, but clearly she was working within biblical framework using things like the elect lady. Absolutely. This is, this is very, uh, New Testament church and she's restoring, um, the the true church, uh, to the earth. And she's going to gather all other religions under her. And so, you know, she is like a prophetess at the very least, and maybe sees herself as the Messiah. We're not sure. She receives revelations all the time and prophesies uh, all the time. She, um, in fact, uh, she, at one point, she prophesied uh, the second coming, uh, that it would occur on April 1st, uh, 1780. And, uh, you know, I just realized that's April Fool's Day and... As, as with most end of the world predictions, they usually <laughs> don't end up uh, working out. But um, but she predicted it, and her followers stayed with her anyway. Uh, now there was an event that occurred the next month that profoundly affected believers all over the United States, up in New England area. It was called the Dark Day, and this day the weather conditions I I don't know what I don't know exactly what was going on, but the sun went dark for several hours and everybody thought it was some huge omen, including uh, Jemima Wilkinson and Anne Lee, who we'll be talking about later. They both saw this as a huge sign that uh, the end of the world was about to come. Now, she, uh, she has a lot of, uh, she ends up with 12 disciples uh, and her, and she ends up, some of her other followers adopt new names. So she had a, her primary, her number one person, disciple, was Sarah Richards. But she sometimes went by the name uh, the prophet Daniel. 
Uh, there's another woman who called herself Enoch, another woman who called herself John the Beloved, and then there was a man, James Parker, who called himself Elijah. Now, this, this has uh, a parallel in Mormonism. Joseph Smith uh, went by the name Enoch, and sometimes uh, Barak Ale, and others of his uh, follower, number top, top people in the Doctrine and Covenants had these substitute biblical-styled names. Now, they were removed from the Doctrine and Covenants in 1979. It's kind of fun to, to look this stuff up in a pre-1979 DNC, and you get these funky names. <laughs> and it's kind of like uh, Jemima Wilkinson and her followers. So I and have to ask then, about that, though. Was there... Uh I'm interested in this idea of women in the 19th and 18th centuries claiming to be resurrected or reborn or renewed or whatever we want to call it as male prophets. I mean, considering the discourse on gender, especially in America at the time, that seems not only heretical, but it sounds like they were rewarded for it anyway. Well, yeah, you know, you're kind of... uh you're kind of leading ahead, but let's let's jump right to that while you're bringing that up. That's that's an excellent point. And what what happens is uh, in this and what ends up to being a communal society is that the women basically become men. So they dress like men. They adopt male names. Some of them, as we just uh, saw. They don't use the term him or her. They, they have general, gender neutral pronouns and they basically erase femaleness, especially among Jemima, especially with Jemima Wilkinson and the top followers. They drop the female identity. Now that let's get into that. We'll get into that shortly, um, but that's a very fascinating thing that's going on. Let me let me just first say that uh, there's a couple other things they did. They would they dropped heathen names completely. So there's no Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It was uh, you know, it was first day of the week, second day, third day. They only numbered them the months the same way. They didn't want to use those kind of uh, paganish names for months. They dressed very plainly. When they talked to each other, they used thee and thou. Um, they were anti-war, anti-slavery. Everyone was completely equal in their society. Uh, women, blacks, Indians, what have you. And so they, the, she, she goes on all this missionary stuff, gathering all these followers. She goes to Philadelphia, which was the largest uh, town city in the United States at that point in time. And she has a lot of uh, converts, but she also uh, is, is beaten, uh, stoned, and uh, has a horrible time. And at that point, some, I think something uh, broke in her, and she decided she was tired of trying to convert the world, and she decided she wanted to retreat off into the wilderness and build her own community. They end up at Seneca Lake in western New York. Now, that the name Seneca might ring a bell with uh, some people. That is uh, the, the lake that John Whitmer later s- 
settled on. And she happens to settle about uh, 30 miles south of what would later become Palmyra, where Joseph Smith would settle uh, the Smith family in 1816. But this is this is way earlier in the 1780s. And she is the first, and her followers are the first white people to settle the area. And they live among the Indians. They have excellent relationships with them. And they build a town, which is called Jerusalem. And this is their new Jerusalem, uh, which they called it. Now, Joseph Smith, uh, as, uh, as many of you know, also traveled out to what he called the border of the Lamanites or the, the American Indians and built, wanted to build a Zion, a new Jerusalem out there. And so you have a very interesting parallel of both of these people traveling out in the middle of nowhere among the Indians to build a Zion, new Jerusalem community. Now, we, we talked a bit about uh, their gender kind of what they did with femaleness. They, they, the women, especially Jemima, wore men's clothes. She, uh, in those days, men parted their hair in the middle and wore their hair down to the sh- her, their shoulders. That's what she did. She would talk in a low, gruff voice. Uh, she, uh, she, the only time she signs anything, she, she signs it, your brother in Christ. So she calls herself a brother, not not a, a woman. And so, Lindsay, you know, you tapped into this earlier. What's going on is because women had no religious authority or, re, or voice in religious the religious arena, they Jemima became a man so that she could have a voice. And you have this amazing reaction to this patriarchal culture where she basically subconsciously perhaps says, I can't be a woman and get anywhere trying to have religious authority. So I am going to be a man and she becomes a man. Yeah. So I was going to ask, how is that received? I mean, were they seen as strange? Did she have a large following? Were they persecuted like Joseph Smith would be later on? Uh, yeah, they. Um, yeah, she had. Uh, yeah, she she had a lot of converts, and there's a lot of reminiscences. People found it kind of bizarre, and we have a lot of uh, people who who say, "Yeah, I listened to Jemima Wilkinson uh, preach today," and they talk about what a great preacher she was. And sometimes they'd say, "You know, she if she would dress like a woman, she'd be a very beautiful person, but she dresses like a man." And they, they found that very curious. She would ride a, a white stallion. She had a long, flowing purple robe. And she, she was quite a sight. She, she, she really took the audiences. And whether they thought she was really weird or uh, they al- always thought that her message was very intriguing. And, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how she was perceived uh, by people. Yeah, it's just fascinating because it was, you know, in Quaker America, for a woman to claim all of this is just really fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So her and her group uh, were the first group that uh, 
uh, as one his, uh, another historian put it, had serious extended gender fluidity. First group in the United States, and, and so it's it's very curious, very curious. Uh, and so they adopted uh, celibacy as as a rule. Uh, the uh, the celibates in the community had a higher status than than the non celibates, but she would tolerate married couples uh, being there, but she would encourage them to have the least amount of sex as uh, possible. And what was the uh, purpose? I mean, it's interesting when you take into consideration her own gender identity, but what would be the purpose of asking adherents to do so? Well, she thought that anybody who is married, that it, there would be this automatic societal assumption that the man was superior to the woman. And she did not believe that. So she would quote scripture that all are equal in the eyes of the Lord and male and female are the same in the Lord's eyes. And so she thought marriage was subjective, that women would be subjected and at lower status if they got married. So she completely rejected it so that there could be equality in her community. That's a really interesting idea in the context of gender and uh, sexual identity and feminism and all of these things. Again, in Quaker America, it's fascinating. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you know, you have you have this, uh, and this is the case with uh, our next person we're going to talk about. But in both women, you have the patriarchy is so severe so extremely severe and women are not allowed to have a religious voice, but you have these women that have to have a religious voice. They're totally compelled to, to speak out and, and be religious in the public arena and they can't. So something has to give, something has to give. And in this instance, what gave was her, the definition of her gender, her gender had to go in her mind, so that she could have a voice in America at that point in time. And I just want to point something out. So in in modern discourse, academic discourse, the word queer, which used to be a slang for anyone who is gay, has been sort of reappropriated to mean anything um, that sort of disrupts the traditional narrative. And so a lot of scholars have called her, you know, this queer Quaker, which is kind of interesting. Um because really, I mean, some some people have said that even Joseph Smith queered the narrative, the religious narrative. He he disrupted it. He changed it. And and in a way, I think that she was doing the same thing too. I mean, she she was a queer American preacher, to use a modern term. Yes, yeah, and you know, uh, you have to wonder what her. Uh, you know, none of these terms existed at the time. But today, we have gender identity. We have uh, you know uh, orientation. Uh, same-sex orientation or homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, I, I don't know where she fits into that. But one thing I find interesting is in, she built a mansion house, kind of like Joseph Smith did in Abu. And this was in Jerusalem, uh, uh, New York. And she, um, and the people who live in her house are other single celibate women. Uh, the married people can't live there. And her very closest people were were other women, and so so you wonder, you know, I it, we don't have anything concrete about her uh, sexual orientation or or if she was transgendered, but 
there are certainly uh, suggestions that that could have been a possibility. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, she's what recognizes the first American-born woman who founds a religious group, right? That we know of. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely, first prophetess uh, in America that founds a religious group. So, a remarkable woman, uh, and and this is just uh, you know less than twenty miles from where Joseph Smith's family moves in eighteen sixteen. She dies in in eighteen nineteen. So there is uh, there's some overlap. Joseph Smith certainly heard uh, about her um, about this woman who's called the elect lady. And he he very likely heard that term uh, being thrown around, and so it's kind of an interesting connection. This proximity is uh, is an interesting connection. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks for bringing that up. What what else do we have on our list of women with this term? We have uh, yeah, Anne Lee. Uh, Anne Lee. Uh, most people uh, would recognize her as the founder of uh, Shakerism or the Shakers. Now, Anne Lee lived in Manchester, and uh, she's she's got a fascinating story and uh, quite a uh, quite a remarkable woman. Um, so, there's some things that influence her very on. So, as a child, they were very poor and they lived in very close quarters. And in those days, the kids saw uh, their parents having sex because there just was no there was no privacy, and they think she had a, uh, well, and the Shakers wrote about this. She had a very, it was very traumatic for her to witness that. And she probably perceived that as some kind of her father attacking her mother. And it, it traumatized her. It really, uh, it, it was very traumatic to her. Later, she is, there's an arranged marriage to uh, a man named Abraham uh, Sandley. And he, uh, she doesn't want to marry him, but but she has to, and so she's she's bitter about that. Then she has four pregnancies, and all of her children die by the, the the one that lived the longest lived to the age of six, and so this was very traumatic to her. And she had, and she thought that this was God punishing her for for her sins. Maybe her sexual feelings, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but, but she did definitely feel that she was being punished and God destroyed her children. Uh, and she would stay up all night and groan and cry and wail. And she got so weak that she could not, she couldn't stand by herself and they had to feed her. That's how strong her guilt was. So it's a huge, huge factor in her development. Well, and I do well, want to I want to point out something interesting as we're talking. It just kind of occurs to me that, you know, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of discussions about Joseph Smith and his motivations, and then even modern prophets like, you know, Warren Jeffs and what's behind his motivations. And one of the common things that I've seen is that people that had desires that were unusual or strange or out of the norms of society often take religion and use use it to uh, I hate to use this word because I don't think it's completely accurate, but justify their behavior or make sense of their behavior. And I, you know, I th- I think you could argue that perhaps Joseph Smith was doing that with his desires. And it's interesting to see these women as well because of the the narratives that women were really boxed into on gender and sex and uh, any of those sort of resources. 
it's interesting to see them use religion as a tool to sort of claim their own autonomy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a big it's definitely a big factor. Yeah. And that idea of a narrative that they predefined narrative that they're born into a religious narrative and you know, like Anne Lee, for example, uh, feeling this horrible guilt because her children die. And somehow it's got to be God telling her that she did something wrong. I mean, that's how she sees it. That gives you an idea of what the religious environment was like at the time, that she would automatically make those kind of assumptions. Now, she so she gets hooked up with this couple uh, that have a small following called the Wardleys. Jane Wardley is the the, the primary lead in this group. Now, the Wardleys are, they are also come from a Quaker background, but they, they have, uh, they also have been influenced by a group called the French prophets or the commissards. And, and so they're kind of a blend of these two religious groups. And, uh, and they're very progressive, extremely progressive. So Jane is the, she's the lead of the group. And the, the commissard, Commissards or the French prophets, they brought in uh, this element of very ecstatic worship, uh, shaking, uh, shaking, and and sometimes uh, going into trances and and uh, having uh, almost what you know fits uh, and so forth. And uh, this was seen as kind of a therapeutic cleansing they would do. But but they were Quakers, but because they shaked, they called them the shaking. Quakers, and then later that term gets shortened to Shakers. So, so that's where the term Shakers comes from. And so, yeah, the beliefs were similar, influenced by some of those things, but it was also unusual because she is a woman. Ran it. Yes. The celibacy was interesting, and the communal living wasn't unusual, but she seemed to do it in an unusual way. Right, right. So, yeah, they, they, the Wardleys, they believe that there was the second coming would be a woman uh, who they, you know, that it would be the eternal mother that would come for the second coming. Uh, a man came for the first coming, Jesus, and the second coming would the, be the eternal mother. And so they had this interesting belief, which is very pro-woman. And Manchester, England, is also extremely patriarchal, and uh, just like the United States was. So this is really radical stuff. Now, Jane, uh, I mean, uh, Ann Lee got to, she was so traumatized to having more sex, sex with her husband because she thought she'd get pregnant again and then her child, children would die. And she just did not want to have sex. And she confided that to Jane Wardley. And Jane told her, she says, hey, me and my husband, we never touch each other. Uh, they were completely celibate. And so Ann Lee kind of a, listens to this, and this later becomes uh, a big factor. Well, so Anne goes out and starts preaching, and preaching by women was not, not, was really frowned on, and so she gets thrown in prison for doing that. And while she's in prison, she has a vision, and it's a vision of the Garden of Eden, and 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 Adam and Eve. And so as you remember, you know, the serpent uh, gets Adam and Eve to take some fruit and suddenly they realize that they're naked and they decide they need to make fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Well, Anne's 
vision takes this further. And in her vision, she sees Adam and Eve and they're having sex. And this infuriates God. And so God casts them from the garden. And, and at this point, she realizes that the root of all problems in humanity are sex. That's, that's the problem. And the original sin is sex, not, not taking the fruit, but having sex. Very, and, and this, this vision is, uh, is huge in her, her development. So she, um, she gets out and she goes out preaching again. And this time they put her in a madhouse and she's in there for quite a while. And while she's in there, she has another vision. And kind of like Joseph Smith, she sees rays of light coming down. And in that light, she sees, she has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus tells her that she is his anointed successor. And so here is kind of her calling where she, she becomes who she's going to be. And she gets out and she tells the Wardleys and they're extremely excited. And she basically says that she is the second coming of Jesus Christ, but she's not, but this is Anne, Anne the Ward, uh, she's often called. And she is the second coming of God, uh, in the flesh incarnate. Now, now for LDS listeners, we, we, we tend to look at things as, uh, non-Trinitarian as three separate and distinct individuals. And for uh, most of Christianity, there's a Trinitarian model. And so it's important to realize that Anne is looking at this in a Trinitarian model. So this is God. God came down as Jesus in the flesh, as a human, as human Jesus. And now God is coming down as Anne in the flesh. The eternal father the first time, and this time it's the eternal mother. Now, Interesting. So it does seem that, um, you know, women have found power in reclaiming the identities of spiritual men, but she does it again, and this time comes back as a heavenly woman. Yeah, yeah. So th- this is what's fascinating between these two women is they have the same problem. You've got patriarchy is extremely severe, yet Anne and Jemima are both compelled to speak and to have a voice and to be prophetesses. And, and, and so as we, as I mentioned earlier, um, Jemima changes the definition of her own gender in order to fit the, the equation to solve this unsolvable problem. Here, Anne Lee changes the definition of Christ to solve the problem. And so Fascinating. Christ is now female instead of, and that empowers her. So it's, it's a fascinating comparison between, between these two women. And again, it really does uh, queer the narrative. And I know that that word will make some, you know, Mormons and Mormon fundamentalists uncomfortable and definitely historians who can see that it's uh, presentism to say that, you know, someone is gay or someone's asexual, but certainly this idea of experimenting with sexuality, religion, and Jesus 
coupled with gender and power is is fascinating. It, it is. Yeah, this is this is pretty uh, pretty fun stuff. I I think. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating how they both solve this problem, uh, so that they can have that religious voice. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, so the name of the Shakers, their official name. You know, we have the Mormons are really, uh, well, the original Mormons were uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is the name Joseph Smith ended up with. He had a couple of other names before that, uh, but the name that. Ann Lee's group is called, it's the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Coming. So it's it's a united society of believers in in Ann Lee, basically, which is Christ's Second Coming. And, and that's that's the name of their religion. Well, she so there's a preacher she uh, runs across or hears, and the preacher is talking about the United States of America, and it's this new land of religious freedom. And so her and her followers, and there's not that many of them, uh, come over to the United States, and they end up setting up a communal uh, uh, society near Albany, New York. And and so there is. You know, I want to read this, and Lindsay, I don't know if you have this. I, I, I don't want to get their beliefs wrong, uh, so I'd rather read this, or maybe have you read this from the paper. It's where it begins, Mormon Beliefs and Practices. Do you have that? By oh, yeah, I do. Sandy? Okay, Mormon beliefs and practices resembled many of those found among the Shakers. For example, Anne Lee's communal Zion group sang in tongues, practiced healings, and gave revelations. Their teachings included an apostasy and a restoration of the, quote, the only true living gospel on earth, end quote. A restoration of keys, preaching to the world of spirits, dietary restrictions, forbidding coffee, tea, and meat, eternal increase, which Mormons would know as eternal progression, that the American Constitution, quote, in the providence of God was to make way for the establishment of the gospel. They believed that, quote, they had entered the Latter-day Glory, which had long been the subject of prophecy, end quote. They also believed in the preexistence, a pro- probationary state and in spiritual posterity. Right. And you know, that that's an amazing list of parallels. Um, <laughs> I, it, and it, it's kind of hard to capture all that, that uh, briefly, but, but the, the number of parallels between the shakers and the Mormons is, is astounding. I think uh, absolutely astounding. And so, and I don't know. So that, that's very curious. So yeah, thanks for, uh, for reading that. Uh, and, and they have this idea of a heavenly mother, um, which Mormonism uh, incorporates later. And they, they saw things a little bit differently than, than the Mormon mother, uh, mother in heaven. Uh, at, but, but still, it's, it's an interesting concept. And I really have to wonder if that idea that the Shakers had kind of got picked up by someone in, in, in Mormon ideology and it got expanded on. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. So, so they're over in the United States and, um, and so Ab- her husband, Abraham, one day, well, he, he's getting, he's a follower and a believer, but he also likes sex. <laughs> it's kind of this conundrum. And he finally gets frustrated and he he says i want to start having sex again and she uh refuses and so he uh, so he goes he comes back with 
what's called a lewd woman. Woman is the you know the term that they use, and uh, and he basically tells Anne, if you don't have sex with me, then I'm going to marry this woman. It's your choice. Well, Anne chooses to keep her celibacy, and so her husband of I think 11 years leaves her. And, it, and it's devastating to her. She uh, she's just heartbroken. She goes into a depression, and uh, and it's it's pretty tough on her. Um, so they they get established in the United States. They set up, and there's different communities that uh, get established. And it oh, and I want to tell you. So this kind of gives you an idea of, of Anne Lee's view of uh, sexuality. So she she says, uh, "quote I have been in the fine valleys with Christ as a lover. I am married to the Lord Jesus Christ." That's, that's kind of how she saw it. And then and then another time she she explained that her natural desires had been replaced by quote the exuberant bliss of divine intercourse. So she wouldn't be the only woman to do this. We have, you know, early Christian Catholic women in different orders. And I'm trying to think of uh, Hildegard of Bingen. So she was one of the the women that she was, you know, locked in one of those. They locked them in a room and she got rid of that. She got, uh, they called it an an anchorage. So she got rid of anchorages and then she started defining uh, women's roles as being brides of Christ. It was pretty revolutionary at the time. Wow, yeah. And, you know, you kind of wonder, this stuff is probably just going on all the time, you know. Uh, At different points in time, uh, women wrestling with this stuff and and redefining it, uh, and then some of it gets recorded in history, and then some of it probably fades off, and we, we don't even know about it, but this Tension is always there, women trying to claim a voice, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, you know, there's one person who uh, talks about, in these societies, the men and the women live together. And this is the only communal society, I believe, that where men and women lived in the same communal group at the same time and would intermix as much as they did. But this caused some some tension uh, among them. Now, one observer uh, noted that the uh, quote the Shaker spirit is magnetism mingled with sexual passion. Close quote. So there's this this problem. You get men and women together and say you can't <laughs> you can't uh, fraternize uh, or you know, have any romantic or sexual relationships. There, there's going to be a problem with that. Here's another. Uh, Quote, let's see, uh, the most hidden abominations were often brought to light, and those secret acts of wickedness, which had been deceitfully covered under, were many times brought to uh, to view in such a manner as to make every guilty soul fear and tremble. Wow. So um, I just, you know, it's funny, in Mormonism, if you grow up like I did, which is you really do wait for marriage it's funny because it's almost like the more taboo you make it, the more exciting it gets. And I can't even imagine how exciting it would have been to have those, like, like, like you said, that magnetism, that, that energy that, that they were 
um, expressing in, in these meetings where you're communing with the divine and, and you're connecting with people in sort of this divine way and then to say, uh-uh-uh, <laughs> but no touching. I mean, I, I can imagine that it was really, really enticing for people. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, a while back I, I was reading, I read uh, a little bit of uh, earlier Christian history about the kind of the aesthetic uh, movement, you know, the people who go out in the desert and live in a mud hut. Oh, yeah, and give and up all, all comforts. And... Give up all comforts. And and so there was something very fascinating about these people who would do it, would go out there, and they would have all sorts of sexual, well, they thought they were, it was the devil tempting them, but they the, the sexuality rose because they were trying to avoid thinking about it by, you know, depriving themselves. And it really only made things worse. <laughs> so it kind of fits with what you're saying about the Shaker community. So here, here's another uh, interesting quote. This is, uh, this is Anne Lee talking, and she says, I see a vision. Uh, and she's talking to, to the congregation. I see a vision, a large black cloud rising as black as thund a thundercloud, and it is occasioned by men sleeping with their wives. So, you know, she just terrifying them and <laughs> says, I know what you're doing, you know. And of course, these would be people who were formerly, formerly married, and then they joined her group and then took a, decided to be celibate. There were rumors uh, in the group of, uh, among the Shakers of male castration, probably to try to alleviate these uh, urges that they had. Uh, others were punished uh, for their sexuality. Here's a quote. Uh, quote, several were whipped and some were ordered to whip themselves as mortification to the flesh. A young woman by the name of Elizabeth Cook was reportedly stripped and whipped naked by Noah Wheaton for having desires towards a young man. So this, this is pretty severe stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I'm glad that you brought that up because it's kind of cool as a you know academic exercise to think about the implications of how revolutionary this was and and gender. But then boots on the ground, it it's also very very rough to cut off you know absolutely essential human urges for most people, um, unless you're asexual or something like that. But clearly. I'm sure there was a lot of pain and suffering and shame that was seen as a sacrifice for the divine. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, you know, I, Anne Lee is awesome, but this celibacy, it, it's a bad recipe for a long standing religious tradition. And so last year there were three shakers and one of them died. So there are only two shakers left alive today. And they're going to be all gone. And one's uh, in their 80s, and I think the other one's in their 70s, something like that. But they're going to be completely extinguished, extinguished because of this idea of, of celibacy. So if you're starting a new religion, <laughs> uh, you don't want to have celibacy because it won't, it won't last. Think big picture. That's the problem if you're a millenarianism <laughs> group where you're, the end of the world is coming. You're like, we don't need three generations from now. It's all going to end. Yep, exactly. Well, they, they would, uh, so they would do um, dance. Uh, the, the Shakers did a lot of dancing and they, and it, it was for therapeutic release. 
it was a form of a spiritual expression, and it also was used to alleviate sexual urges uh, they felt. Now, interestingly, uh, Brigham Young did some very interesting, he had some revelations about dance, and he really held dance as this very high form uh, that they would do in the Nauvoo Temple and, and elsewhere. And the, the men would dance together, and it was considered this, you know, a very high-level spiritual thing. Same thing with the Shakers. So let me read you. Uh, this is a former Shaker named Thomas Brown, and, and here's what he had. To, he kind of describes their dancing. There's always been among the Shakers more or less operations, contortions, and agitations of body, but they now become excessive, especially at their meetings, such as trembling, shaking, twitching, jerking, whirling, leaping, jumping, stamping, uh, rolling on the floor or ground, running with one or both hands stretched out, seemingly impelled forward, uh, the one way or both pointed, some barked and, and crowed and imitated the sound of several other creatures. These were gifts of mortification. Also hissing, brushing, and driving the devil or evil spirits out of their houses. So that gives you a sense. And, and I've got more. I won't, uh, for the sake of time, I, I won't continue on. But it's the same, <laughs> it's the same kind of description of, of their dancing. Now, other dances uh, were more uh, formalized. The men and women would face each other, but they could never touch uh, when they were dancing. And one observer who saw this uh, described the Shakers as, quote, swiftly passing and repassing each other like clouds of clouds agitated by a mighty wind. Wow. So here's uh, this uh, same uh, former Shaker uh, says, uh, in order to mortify the carnal mind, their dances were excessive. Several things which took place for the sake of modesty are here omitted. They stopped every avenue of their houses. I think that means they covered the windows so that the world's people, you know, the non-shakers, as they called them, could not see them and had one or two of the brethren out to watch. And then they stripped themselves and danced naked. When the gift or order came from Mother Anne to do so, so Anne, Anne Lee would order them to strip down and dance uh, naked. Those who would not be obedient had to walk out of the room, and such were generally mortified by being called fleshly creatures, full of the flesh. So, so we just so, got to take a minute and discuss how cruel this is. No sex. Very sensual dancing. Oh, and by the way, we're doing it naked. Yeah, it's. <laughs> it's. I, I wonder if she's like I am able to do this, and you all should be able to resist this too. I, I've been trying to understand what she is trying to do, and I and I can't quite wrap my head around it. But it's 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 interesting. Uh, <laughs> very interesting. So another former Shaker uh, you know, reports uh, that, quote, some of the women Shakers stripped naked in the woods, thinking that they are angels and invisible and, quote, can go about among men and not be seen. And then, it, and then he goes on to explain that they were not naked in one sense, being clothed with spiritual garments or clothed with salvation. So 
So they would argue, oh, we, we're clothed, but it's with salvation and spiritual clothing. Uh, the same guy, uh, well, this uh, Brown, a former Shaker, uh, you know, is talking about his experiences. He says, uh, an, an amusing incident was reported in which the brethren wished to dance nude, which they called rejoicing. But they had to desist when Anne and another sister wanted to enter the room, uh, to which one of the brethren objected. Uh, he said to her, you know, if any of the sisters are with us, we shall have a war that is have to fight against the rising of our nature. But as she would not retire, he pushed her out and shut the door against her. So here you have a, a subtle allusion to the, the struggle that they had uh, with with this naked dancing stuff and fighting against their, their desires. Wow. Some of the dancing was uh, very ecstatic. Uh, some of them would faint and whirl. And here's, here's an interesting uh, thing, a quote, some of the new Lebanon shakers died from excessive exertion in trying to eliminate their sexual desires. Nightlong dancing followed by sleep upon uh, the floor on chains, ropes, sticks, and every humiliating and mortifying posture they could devise. So, anyway, that kind of gives you a, a sense of of the shakers and, I don't know. And their extreme chapter. religious devotion, yeah. Yes, yep, absolutely. All right, so that that's kind of Anne Lee. Um, they both, remember, they were both uh, called elect ladies by uh, the people, uh, and that's what they're known as in America. Sometimes they'd be confused. They'd talk about one elect lady, and they would have the wrong one. So it, this was a common uh, term. Uh, they both rejected marriage as we've talked about but they had they had opposing solutions to their uh, well they have had opposite gender solutions very interesting how that worked so I, I think maybe we're ready to, to go on and talk about Emma Emma Smith yeah hey I know her <laughs> yeah so Emma Smith so so something kind of to how her she becomes uh, known as an, an elect lady. Uh, so very, very early in the church, this is in 1830, the church is uh, um, organized in April. And in June, they do some baptisms, including Emma, and they want to confirm the baptisms. And the, there's a lot of mob activity that's preventing them from doing that. And, and Joseph Smith ends up um, getting arrested and goes to court all day and then he gets released and then he gets arrested again and uh and he goes to court again and then he escapes and and he goes uh goes home and then he decides all right i'm going to go back again and uh, try to finish these confirmations and and uh, then again they're chased again in the wilderness and he says five years later so the event occurred in 1830, but in 1835, for the first time, he says, oh, I remember when we were running from these people in the wilderness, we had a vision of Peter, James, and John appearing to him and Oliver Cowdery and giving the, and ordaining them uh, apostles. Now, but there is, is, I can't find any evidence, and other historians have looked too, 
there doesn't seem to be any evidence of any kind of a Melchizedek priesthood. This is, you know, this later becomes the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. There, there's no evidence of a Melchizedek priesthood in 1830 or anything else like that. There's, there's only one thing I can find that is authority related, and that is the is Doctrine and Covenants section 25, which is occurs right at this time, and it gives Emma Smith authority, and is told that she should be ordained, and that she is going to become an elect lady, and she is given duties that are equivalent to the teachers and priests at the time. Uh, teachers and priests can expound and exhort to the church, and I, I don't have the list uh, in front of me of what, what they do, but Emma is told exactly the same thing, that she has those same duties that teachers and priests have. The Joseph Smith in 1842, so, th- so this is 1830 that we're talking about, this revelation that where Emma becomes the elect lady. And in 1842, when he ordains, they reordain Emma and she gets counselors and, and Joseph Smith does some reminiscing about about those days. And he says uh, in 1842 that she was ordained right at the same time that he received that revelation. So, so you have this ordination that, that occurs of Emma, possibly uh, to the office of uh, elect lady. And she would have been, the I think, the uh, roughly the 13th ordained person in the church. Uh, if if I Michael Marquardt has helped me uh, figure that out, I, I we think it's probably the thirteenth ordination in the church. Now, at the same time, in the eighteen thirties, it's much more progressive in the eighteen thirties than it was in the seventeen seventies uh, when Ann Lee and Jemima Wilkinson were were on the scene, and there are female preaching that occurs. Uh, in the 1830s and 1840s, they're done by radical, radical religions, new upstarts. One of the radical upstarts are the Methodists. And Joseph Smith was briefly a Methodist uh, in the 1820s. And what's kind of interesting is that uh, the, these radical groups that allow female preachers, well, when they become mainstream, as they grow in size, they rewrite their histories to edit out that women could that women did preach. It's kind of funny how they do that, but they don't want to admit that once they uh, gain some esteem in the eyes of other American religious groups. Yeah, that is fascinating. Now, yeah, and it's not. It's in the uh, 1860s that the first woman is ordained a minister of a congregation. So things are improving, but. They keep getting better as time goes on uh, for for women and, and ordination. Now, Emma is called the elect lady, and this isn't just a passing phrase that only occurs in DNC twenty five. This is a title that she went by, and so you can find references. They will talk about Joe Smith, the prophet, and his elect lady Emma. Uh, and you see these in popular uh, in, in some of the newspapers and observations at the time. Also, um, she's called, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, it's Electa, and it's C-Y-R-I-A. Uh, it's either C 
Kyria or Kyria. Uh, and what it is, that's the Greek word for elect lady. And so I, somebody who knows Greek will have to, <laughs> will have to help me out with my pronunciation. But she goes by this Electra Kyria or Syria title a lot. And it shows up in newspapers and so forth as as a special title that Emma goes by. So, all right. So Emma, she her gender authority kind of goes in two directions. In some ways, her gender authority is diminished and in other ways it increases. Let's let's first talk away about how uh, one way that it is decreased. So, and that is, uh, and you've probably talked a little bit about this, uh, Lindsay, polygamy. <laughs> um, the institution of uh, polygamy, uh, I I would couch in this in the in the confines of of our discussion as an erosion of Emma's gender authority and. Symbolically, the gender authority of all women later who engage in this form of uh, marriage practice. And so you've got, uh, you know, the first marriages, uh, well, about uh, most of the marriages were polygynous, uh, polygynous, which means uh, one man with uh, many women. And it's hard to have gender authority when you have, when a woman is sharing. The, the guy with a bunch of other women that that diminishes uh, her gender authority within that marriage. Now, polyandry, the, the first uh, about a third of the marriages were polyandry, which may, means one woman and many men. Some might assume that polyandry might mean, hey, here's a woman who has the ability to go and pick husbands and uh, and she gets to call the shots. That, that is not the case in Mormonism and in Joseph Smith's polyandry. It is the women had no authority in polyandry, and they really were ways to link families together or uh, families usually of other important men. So a man's wife would get married to Joseph Smith or maybe his daughter, and that would link the family. And so the women were more uh, to be used as links, uh, I would say. So, not no gender authority there. Now, um, however, there is uh, Emma. I think tries within this structure as her. She doesn't even know about a lot of these marriages. She finds out about them through the rumor mill, and you know it's not. Uh, and so she, it appears, she tries to reclaim some of this power, um, but it it doesn't really work out. And, well, and to give you an idea of how tense all of this stuff is, is uh, you know, at, at some point Joseph Smith gets—he thinks he's been poisoned by Emma. So I, that kind of gives you a sense of how tense things were. Now I'm going to pull out another sheet here. I've got some notes here. So Emma, th there's a point where Emma—and this is from some journals uh, and diaries at the time—Emma felt it was only fair that she have quote at least one man spiritually sealed up to her because Joseph had so many wives. So she's trying to reclaim some of this loss of power by saying, Hey, I want to, I want, I think I should get an extra husband too. And, and so the, you know, the quote goes, quote, if, if he would indulge himself, she would too. Um, 
And so she wanted, she was supposed to marry William Law, who was a very powerful man in Nauvoo at the time. And Joseph was going to marry William Law's wife, uh, Jane. And William Law later uh, remembered this, and he, he, he talked about this. He said, uh, regarding the proposed marriage, he says it really wasn't a wife swap, but a compensation to Emma for her grief. Uh, but it came with the condition that Emma stop her opposition to polygamy and permit him, Joseph, to enjoy his young wives in peace. Now, about two weeks later, Joseph Smith has the revelation that's commonly uh, today, most people call it uh, Doctrine and Covenants, Section 132. This is on July 12, 1843. And in that revelation, this temporary idea that women could start practicing uh, getting her own spiritual husbands or plural husbands, the offer is rescinded. Emma uh, it says in the in the revelation, uh, it, this is in verses uh, 51 and 54, that she, quote, partake not of that which I commanded you, Joseph, to offer her, and that she was to, quote, abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else, or she shall be destroyed. So, so this temporary offer that would give her some equality is is rescinded. And then, of course, there's the law of Sarah, where Emma is, it sounds like she's going to get the choice of to be able to veto uh, Joseph Smith's choices of wives. But then the revelation goes on and says, no, uh, if you do veto him, then you will be destroyed. So, so any temporary claim of gender authority she's trying to reclaim is, is lost. Yeah, and so when we when we talk about the discourse on gender, it's interesting to see how women take the doctrine and religion, and how men in, in a similar time period also take the doctrine and and use it as well. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say doctrine. I, I guess I mean faith or religion. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's true. That's true. Um, well, so. All right, so now I just talked about an example where Emma loses gender authority, as I've termed it. But the, the, she also increased in authority. So in 1842, uh, uh, Joseph Smith declares the elect lady revelation uh, fulfilled when Emma is elected uh, the Relief Society president of the church. And, and it wasn't, and this is more than the Relief Society president, uh, that term today in, in Mormon discussion. Uh, it was a lot higher status uh, than than that term is today when we use that term. Um, now, when Emma became the uh, over the Relief Society, she used her position to fight against polygamy, which is kind of ironic. She gains some authority and immediately uses it to combat Joseph Smith trying to to take away authority within the the marriage system. Uh, she also uh, gets, so the Relief Society minutes in 1842 say that Emma and the Relief Society women got a key of the priesthood. Uh, the leading women were to be ordained. And uh, and then later, uh, there's a quorum of the anointed, as, it's, as it later became called. And in this quorum, Joseph Smith and Emma are both co-ordained 
to the high quote the highest and holiest order of the priesthood close quote. This is a a big deal that we never talk about today in in the Mormon Church, and but I think it's it's huge. The implication there is huge of this presiding couple over the priesthood. But the problem though is in that is that you know even though women have priesthood through the temple they're still subordinate to their husbands. And that's kind of codified into to Mormonism. Well, Joseph ends up getting murdered, largely at the hands of William Law, who was to become Emma Smith's plural husband. Uh, William Law got tired of polygamy. He produced a newspaper called the Novo Expositor, and the uh, Joseph orders the Expositor destroyed. And then Joseph ends up being, that sets off events that leads to him being murdered. Emma would go on to fight against polygamy. Uh, she fought against Brigham Young, who wanted to keep polygamy going. And then she raised her children to reject plural marriage. The RLDS Church, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was founded, and they did not practice or believe in polygamy. That's, you know, I have, I have a summary, Lindsay, and if I read it, I think it, it would be more concise. It's one page. To, yeah, that's great. Think, yeah, go for all it. Right, let, me, let me do this one page, and, and then we, we'll get this wrapped up. Uh, so the New American Republic's promise of religious freedom created an environment where religious experimentation could thrive. Not only was religion open to reinterpretation, so were all aspects of society, including marriage, sexuality, and gender roles. The rise of three new religious movements produced women whose roles were considered so lofty that they were granted the New Testament title, Elect Lady. Jemima Wilkinson's Society of Friends, Anne Lee's United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, and Joseph Smith's Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, each reshaped the role of women in areas regarding religious authority, gender roles, and sexuality. The religious authority claimed by Jemima Wilkinson came from a male spirit called the universal friend who possessed her body. She rejected sexuality, believing that celibacy brought one to a higher spiritual level and freed women from male authority. Due to the extreme patriarchal negative view of women at the time, she completely denied her womanhood, assuming a male identity. She sacrificed her female gender identity to obtain religious authority. Anne Lee embraced celibacy because of the childhood trauma of seeing her parents have sex, her unwanted arranged marriage, and losing all of her children despite four deliveries. Her guilt evoked a vision of Adam and Eve having sex and being cast from the garden for their sin. The vision cemented Anne Lee's anti-sex doctrine. Lee's altered gender role was also a reaction to her patriarchal culture. However, she went in the opposite direction of the universal friend and instead embraced and magnified her gender. Rather than redefine her gender to obtain religious authority, she redefined the definition of Christ to include womanhood. 
She became, in essence, the ultimate manifestation of a woman, a goddess incarnate, incarnate, the female manifestation of God in the flesh. She was the second coming of Christ. Emma Smith's elect lady role increased female religious authority in Mormonism, putting her at the head of a woman's organization that was parallel to the recently introduced all-male endowment ritual. Emma would be co-ordained with Joseph Smith as, in essence, the presiding couple over Mormonism's highest level of priesthood, an important event with interesting implications lost to modern Mormonism. At the same time, the practice of plural marriage diminished the authority of women within the institution of marriage. Emma's resistance to plural marriage nearly saw gains for women, but the revelation opening the way for women to have plural husbands was rescinded. However, her continued resistance did lead to the second largest Latter-day Saint denomination rejecting plural marriage. Emma's continu Emma continuously fought to prevent the further erosion of her and symbolically her gender's relative power within marriage. The stories of these three elect ladies from the early decades of the American Republic demonstrate their dissatisfaction with patriarchy as each woman in her own way rebelled against the established gender and sex roles they were expected to live as they rose in religious authority. Each was a feminist before the term was coined, striving for a more equal state within the religious context in the 1770s to the 1840s. I love that. So that's what I got. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, very fascinating. Fascinating. I think that there is a lot to chew on it just because it's just plays so interesting with theology, with gender, with power, sexuality, social norms, all of these kind of things. So I think it's such an important thing to discuss and to see how it, how, um, you know, it shakes out in all of these different traditions. What's interesting is it seems that Mormonism, uh, the doctrine of polygamy in that sense did, at least we have more adherence than the shakers do. <laughs> so it was a more long-term um, strategy yeah. for, for converts than anything else. Absolutely. Missionary work and uh, lots and lots of kids. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mormonism is going to be around for, for quite a while, I think. Not more, though, than, than monogamous couples, as the data has shown, for those who hear that and oh. then they turn off their brain and that's all they hear. Like, oh, see, polygamy does bring about more children. Polygamy brings about that's children. True. We'll say that. More than the shakers. Yes. More than the shakers. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, uh, Claire, thanks so much. Is there anything else you want to share with us today before I let you go? No, I just, um, I'm, I'm just uh, glad for people to have the opportunity to hear a little bit more about these, uh, uh, these other women uh, that they probably haven't heard much about. And uh, they're, they're really fascinating and true pioneers uh, in, in America for uh, the voice of women, the rise of uh, women in in religion. So I, I, I hope people uh, found that interesting and got to know them a little bit better. Yeah, I, th I think that they did. So thank you for highlighting the stories of these women and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy it.
sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.